It's the Bill C-11 Senate Hearing Special 2. Hi, I'm your host, Drew Wilson. Welcome to episode 48 of the Freezing Official Podcast for October 2022. Here are your top three headlines. Bill C-11 hearings continue at the Canadian Senate. Massive witness intimidation scandal clouds Bill C-11 hearings, and the mastermind behind this scheme to silence critics is none other than notorious Liberal MP Chris Biddle. And the Canadian government shuts down link tax hearings as it tries to ram through Bill C-18 with minimal debate. Before I get into the top three stories, I wanted to point out that I've posted two vlog postings this month. The first is on the massive witness intimidation scandal that has rocked the Bill C-11 hearings. The second video, the normal entry of the month, offers some statistics on the hearings as well as some thoughts and reflections. It even has a prediction on where things are going to head with Bill C-11. You can check out those videos directly on the website. Now to the top three stories. The Bill C-11 Senate hearings are continuing. Last month we left off halfway through the sixth hearing. In the second segment, we heard from even more lobbyists. Yep, lobbyists have been a real theme throughout these hearings. What has also been a theme throughout the hearings is how lobbyists also dodged the real questions in the debate. That's what happened when Senator Fabian Manning asked one of the lobbyists about the threat of the other countries passing similar legislation. The morning before the House of Commons and here again this evening, you stated that in order to survive and make a living, and I've heard that from many artists in Newfoundland and Labrador, you have to try to find a global audience for your songs. Due to streaming and social media platforms, more and more writers are building that global audience, as we have had several examples given to us here this evening, whereas in the past, they would have been had no commercial avenue to do that. In that regard, how concerned are you about what other countries may pass similar legislation to protect their own local artists? Uh, this is a concern that, again, was raised here this evening, but raised by others in relation to the fact that uh, we're the first country to uh, to bring in a piece of legislation of this nature. So I'm just wondering what your uh, mm-hmm. concerns well, are. Well, as I as I said, we we support Bill uh, C11, and we and and we also recognize that many across our sector have benefited from the discoverability mechanisms that have existed on radio, especially those artists who work in French. And my colleagues have really underlined the import of that. Um, and that said, we believe no one and no one around this virtual table or those there in, in Ottawa tonight. I don't, I don't think anyone, re- including the platforms, wish to limit the potential of Canadian musicians and businesses. And I think that when this conversation gets to the CRTC, that's going to be central. Um, it's hard to know. And obviously we can't control what other countries do. But what we can do is build a robust, and when we are, we have a robust Canadian uh, music uh, industry right now. And what we believe is that greater investments in artists and in music companies in the infrastructure uh, will lead to greater discoverability on the internet of Canadian artists. Yeah. Not answering the serious questions has really become a theme as of late for lobbyists. An argument could be made here that maybe lobbyists do not have answers to these questions. So with week two complete, we then started with week three of the hearings. During the first segment of hearing seven, we heard from scholars and researchers. 
There was a lot of very insightful stuff, such as just how not transparent the CRTC is. One of the witnesses, however, did something that I hadn't seen up to this point, doing a complete 180 as other witnesses discusses, at length, the problems with Section 4. Here's Trudell towards the beginning of the question and answer segment. My question is for Mr. Trudell. You testified that you believe that the CRTC should explicitly have authority over user-generated content and the algorithm source codes that dictate discoverability. You also said that C11, and I quote, gives Canadians the effective opportunity to choose programming or to produce the broadcast programming that reflects the rich diversity of our society and the existence of Canada's official languages and the languages of our Indigenous people. What do you say to the witnesses who have come before this committee that forcing platforms to base logarithms on anything other than consumers' own behavior and preferences? What is... Uh, which is what C11 does and what you're advocating for, will negatively impact consumer choice, eroding consumer trust to the point that they will just tune out the content and even the platforms altogether. That goes against what you're saying about consumer choice, doesn't it, Mr. Trudel? First, consumer choice... Well, for consumers to have choice, there needs to be content available. The Canadian broadcasting system ensures support for production. Not just Anglophone production, but production in French and Indigenous languages. And for this to happen, the major players in the broadcasting system, need to contribute to production. They need to invest in Canadian content. That is how Canadian consumers will have a choice. Otherwise, the only choices they will have is what the international audiovisual sector gives them. And that is a partial choice. A choice which excludes many types of production, particularly minority productions. Second point. Concerns about user-generated content seem completely unfounded, and here's why. The Broadcasting Act has, since 1991, not only allowed, but required the CRTC to only regulate undertakings with a demonstrable impact on Canada's broadcasting policy objectives. The allegation that the Broadcasting Act would make it so the CRTC would be judge and jury of user-generated content is wildly exaggerated. Because under the Act, the CRTC would be required to regulate only undertakings with a major impact on Canada's broadcasting policy objectives. So either user-generated content does have a major impact on Canada's broadcasting policy objectives, as set out under Section 3 of the Act. And in that case, I don't know why user-generated content would be excluded from regulation. Or, as is being claimed, this sort of content 
is re- the result of the work of individuals or very small biz- companies. Regular people who are entering the production and creation market. So if it does not have a major impact on Canada's broadcasting policy objectives, then it will not be regulated. It seems to me that allegations that C-11 would impact user-generated content are entirely baseless. Yeah, this whole thing about user-generated content is totally fabricated. There's no way that such content would be touched by this legislation. Well, after numerous exchanges about Section 4 with other witnesses, Trudeau was seen looking down at something. Presumably, he was looking at the legislation. At the end of the question-answer segment, after answering a completely unrelated question, Trudeau seemed to realize he screwed up. I would say that there is a need to distinguish between the CRTC, which is has become quite dysfunctional over the last decade and is not playing its role. And uh, all of that is to say that C-11 ought to rework the legislative framework. in a way that gives the CRTC the tools it needs to oversee the transformation of the broadcasting system as it moves from a traditional environment to a more online environment. This seems to be the role of a bill like C-11. I'd like to say a few words about 4.1 and 4.2. It wasn't really necessary to add these. The Broadcasting Act already allows the CRTC to exclude undertakings without an impact on the broadcasting system from the Act. So I don't understand why we're adding, why we've added sections 4.1 and 2, which, as we've noted, just add confusion to the Act. Whoops! (laughs) Now, credit where credit is due. When Trudeau was told about the sections seemingly during the hearing, he actually looked at the sections, assessed what they mean, acknowledged the problems with them, and offered an honest assessment building on both his knowledge of the Broadcasting Act and the legislation. An oversight on his part? Perhaps. But at least he gave the time of day to understand what others were saying and honestly assess it. For that, I have to give respect for that. It just so happened that he acknowledged the big problem of the legislation in the process and wound up making a similar call to what critics have been saying all along. Honestly, quite a moment during the hearing in and of itself. In the next segment of Hearing 7, we heard from three Digital First creators. For all the lobbyists that we've heard from, the number of creators they ended up hearing from up to this point has been quite low. It was during those hearings that an interesting idea emerged given that it seems all but a sure thing that platforms are going to be contributing to a creation fund. Here's Senator Karen Sorensen asking the question and answers by, in order, J.J. Mikulov, Justin Tomchuk, a.k.a. Umami, and Wyatt Sharp. 
Uh, thanks. Uh, welcome, guests. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I will comment. Uh, I appreciate and have much respect for the demographic uh, in our witnesses today. Um, I'm going to ask each of you the question, so you may need to keep your answers uh, short. I agree with Mr. McCullough's comment that we are at the stage of compromise in terms of where we're at in the process. So my question is, is there anything in this bill that you think would be helpful to Canadian creators if amendments to protect the USG were made? Whoever wants to start. That could be helpful. Well, I mean, I think it, it's obviously the case that, as I sort of was trying to get at in, in my comments, that there is obviously like a financial dimension to the bill. And there is a lot of sort of focus, and I think rightfully so, on sort of the content side. Uh, but there is also sort of the idea of, you know, like I sort of said, getting big tech to pay its fair share. And then I know that this money then goes into funds like the Canadian Content uh, Fund, right, which is, you know, sort of sprinkled around to help subsidize. Various artists, I know that there's a Quebec dimension to this issue that's very particular and very near and dear to a lot of, of, of Quebecers, I think rightfully so, that I understand that Quebec occupies a sort of unique cultural space in this country and that perhaps relies more heavily on these sort of subsidy regimes than, than creators like us in, in the rest of the country. Although not for Justin, I know he's in Quebec as well. But, uh, but so like, I think that that is sort of the compromise that I could sort of see being reasonable, is that we have a discussion that's more focused on sort of financial equity, financial equality, paying their fair share, ensuring that big platforms like YouTube are paying into things like the Canadian uh, Content Creator Fund uh, to ensure that the sort of the subsidy regime, you know, which people can have ideological problems with, but I think, you know, that's not really the debate that we're having right now. We're having a debate about the future of Canadian media, the future of online media, and if there is to be sort of a robust subsidy regime that is part of that, and if that requires sort of big tech to pay more into it than they presently are, I think that that's a reasonable compromise if it means that government sort of surrenders some of its ambition in terms of dictating the type of content that Canadians should be watching or should be making. Thanks. Mr. Sharp or Mr. Tonchuk? Personally, you know, a lot of YouTube creators, I'm not just a YouTube creator, like an individual that, you know, there's a, a lot of companies that also have YouTube channels and, you know, some of these companies are producing tens of thousands of dollars per month, upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. A lot of that money goes right back into taxes, you know, and goes right back into the Canadian media fund. So personally, I find it a bit, you know, like it's almost like I, I am kind of helping out these legacy media companies by paying my taxes, which goes to the subsidies, which funds the programs that I have nothing to do with, which I'm also disqualified from applying for oftentimes. Um, so I feel like, you know, for YouTube or TikTok, which are my business partners, to have to pay extra for my competition, which it, it feels a little bit unfair to me. Because as, as time goes on, we're going to see that these big telecom industries are going to actually be more in competition with small-time creators. I mean, there's some, some creators on, on YouTube, some creators on Twitch that bring in $100,000 a month. Some people bring in a million dollars a month. It, it's almost going to get to a point in 15 years where that the line between what is a, a big media corporation and what is just a uh, content creator on YouTube is going to be very blurred. Um, and so it, it seems to me that, you know, by asking YouTube and TikTok to subsidize CanCon content, which, by the way, these legacy media companies had nothing to do with the development of the growth of YouTube or TikTok or, or anything to build up the audiences that are on those platforms to begin with, unlike myself and my colleagues here, I feel like it's unfair that uh, they should have to pay into those systems. Thanks. Do I have time if Mr. Sharp has a comment? You do. Um, 
just briefly, I guess, I mean, I think JJ and Justin both touched on it, but I think um, lots of different types of people who are affected by this. So you have, um, as JJ alluded to, some of the bigger tech giants, like some of the bigger, in this case, news corporations. And then you have people like um, the three of us who are very much independent content creators who um, put out content for people to see. So I guess I would just say briefly and to be concise that there are different types of people who are affected by it. And I think in a certain aspect of things, Bill C-11 assesses kind of where everyone's at and might offer uh, different ways to support or not support various people, again, depending on where they're at. This is where the idea, at least on the hearing side of things, began to form about if large tech platforms have to pay into a fund, then why not allow these digital creators that help to build these platforms actually have access to some of those funds? After all, that money would otherwise go to the large legacy players that had little to nothing to do with the growth of the platforms. Why should they be the sole beneficiaries of those funds? To expand on that point, smaller players tend to have lower cost overhead because they generally aren't paying for some of the things traditional broadcasters are paying for. This might include licensing fees as well as equipment dedicated to the traditional spectrum that TV lives on and the cost to put those signals on, say, old transmitters for rabbit ear TVs, satellite connections, or even cable transmissions. So, as Umami pointed out, it really doesn't seem fair that a digital first creator goes through the effort of planning and creating content when the fruits of their labor goes only to the legacy players afterwards. Moving on to the 8th hearing, we saw more Digital First creators as well as Scott Benzi of Digital First Canada. During the hearing, one of the creators, Orby Roy, aka Andy Skates, was asked what it would mean for her career if Bill C-11 is passed as is. Roy responded bluntly that she would have to start looking for a full-time job. That is as stark as you're going to get for an answer, but it is honest. A lot of creators feel that their livelihoods are under threat and some have openly said that they might start looking at VPNs or moving out of the country altogether to continue their careers. That's just a taste of what the mood is regarding creators in C11. Another aspect of this hearing is the witness intimidation scandal that cropped up. As mentioned in the top three, notorious Liberal MP Chris Biddle was accused of leaking a request for an investigation into Digital First Canada to the Globe and Mail, an investigation that went nowhere because the lobbying commissioner found no evidence of wrongdoing. The idea was seemingly to bully and silence critics of Bill C-11, an effort that fortunately ended in failure. Senators were shocked and disgusted that this even took place. Evidence was tabled, proving that the organization did nothing untoward and is in compliance with all applicable laws. Now, one theme that had cropped up in these hearings surrounded francophone content. The hand-wringing by some senators was that French voices were getting suppressed on social media and, without this legislation, will mean that Quebec culture would die out completely. There was, of course, no evidence at all that this was happening, but it was being repeated on multiple occasions. The question was then put forward to Benzi regarding this very topic. Let's just say that the talking point got completely and utterly destroyed. Here's Senator Julie Meville de Shane questioning Benzi on this. I'd like to follow this uh, question, this issue of Canadian content, CanCon, particularly from uh, minority sections of the society, Francophones, for example. You spoke very enthusiastically of your respective content, and I really admire these creators. But it's a broader question that we're addressing. How can we ensure that 
French language content, a minority in a vastly English uh, continent, can be exposed more to the market. They're there, they exist. But uh, have you given any thought to this question? I know it's a specific question, very targeted. For the majority audience, yes. For Canadian content in general, okay, I agree. But when we're trying to maintain the survival of the Francophone culture and language, they have to have access to this. They, want to, they have to hear that music, hear that language. I'd like your opinion on that. <laughs> um, when it comes to Quebec and our Quebec creators and understanding that, you know, Quebec has unique um, challenges that a lot of Canada doesn't have. Um, but I would like to direct your attention to a few things. Uh, Emma Verdi, Madi Ba, Lissandra Nadeau, Jesse Boo, Rosalie Lassard, P.L. Cluche, Emma Boss, Emile Roy, Polo, and Fred Bastian. These are all excellent digital creators that have created businesses and careers online. They're not small. They are full-time jobs for them. And the issue at hand here is, do we want to displace them with approved legacy media? I welcome you to have conversations with them. I will happily make introductions to them. I know Fred Bastian is going to be here next week. Um, I look forward to you having those conversations with him. Um, but there is a subsect of Quebec digital creators that are doing really well. And the, the issue and the challenge and what we're, we're trying to guard against is protecting those creators so that we're not favoring legacy media over them. Larger than that, are they heard in Quebec? Are they listened to in Quebec? Is francophone music listened in Quebec when it's streamed? And this is the difficult part. Yes, you are creators and you create content and it's viewed globally, but it has also to be viewed here in Canada to, to, to participate to the French culture. So those are all, every name I named are primarily francophone Quebecer creators and their main audiences are all in Quebec. Man, now that is what I call a beatdown to a talking point. If that is not the top knockout punch of the hearings, that has got to be at least in the top 10. So much for the talking point that Quebec voices aren't being heard. While there was certainly numerous exciting elements in the first segment, the second segment with more lobbyists was quite sleepy to say the least. There was one moment where the topic of digital first creators came up. They were asked about the risk they face with the legislation. Here's Senator Jim Quinn asking some questions and being responded to by David Arrington. Just a very short follow-up. Uh, we've just heard from a panel just before, uh, before you gentlemen and others that Section 4.2 puts at risk their ability, you know, the small guy, the person who does the 30-second clip or whatever, and it's uh, telling little Canadian vignettes, if I can say that, the act is written in 4.2 risks them being able to continue on in that space. Those are the little, the little ones. And I understand there's hundreds, if not thousands of them. How do you respond to their concerns? Um, there's a, there's a role for all of us to exist here. Right. Um, you know, I, I too, take snippets from our long programming content and we push them out on TikTok and YouTube and whatnot. So we're playing in that 
role as well in that vehicle as well. Um, but when you're talking about a large segment of the Canadian population, be it uh, Indigenous programming or be it programming for persons with disabilities, I think it has a stronger sense of, of importance than that. So what I'm asking for today from my representation of AMI is really to preserve what we currently have and this great thing that we're currently building that's the MVL around the world. You know, you know, that's why the Canadian broadcasting system is special. So do I want those small, independent, little TikTok people to go away? No, I think they're important. I think it's viable and I think they should participate in the system. All I'm asking for is the same rules apply that currently apply to broadcast and distribution undertakings, apply to virtual broadcast and distribution undertakings. And that would, that would, that would solve the problem for us going forward and, and preserve these things such as AMI or ABTM. So would you agree that we should then consider an amendment to 4.2 to address those concerns of those little guys that you know you want to see them stay on and whatnot, yet they express fears that they're going to be challenged to stay on. So should we entertain their suggestions I, around 4.2? I think more Canadian content is better. And Kevin, if you want to jump in, you can. For me, this clip showcases the changing of attitude towards the concept of digital first creators by Bill C-11 supporters. As you heard last month, the attitude was basically that digital first creators basically do not exist, and the debate surrounding digital content was, to quote one C11 supporter, a canard. Now that we've had a number of digital first creators be given permission to speak in their defense, you start to hear the charge that digital first creators don't exist evaporate. As many have already said, as a matter of fact, we do exist. <laughs> in its place is somewhat more diplomatic language, Although I did note some comments that digital first content was still considered not professional, or not something a lot of people would want to watch. Given that this hearing was right after the hearing involving Digital First Canada, you could really hear that this new response to the creators was a little more, shall we say, wobbly as they tried to get a better footing on how to respond. Still, the attitude was actually notably changing at the very least. That ultimately closed out week three of the hearings. We then got to week four right after. When we got to the ninth hearing, I couldn't help but notice that the setup for these hearings began to change. Before, we had panels that were either all supportive of the legislation or asking for changes to section four. These panels were largely isolated from each other with the only real connection being the senators asking questions, bridging both panels together in that manner. In the next hearing, you had a digital first creator and a legacy corporate representative in the same hearing. It was during this hearing that I started to notice that Bill C-11 supporters started to formulate their responses to the criticisms of the bill in a little bit more of a coherent manner. In this case, I noticed that the supporter began trying to turn the regulation of online content as something that separates user-generated content from the premium platforms like Netflix and Disney+. In fact, the supporter here seemed open to the idea of exempting what he referred to as the t-shirt sellers. I figured at that point, hey, if that's what you're going to call it, by all means, as long as it gets the point across of what the aims are for the smaller players. Now, the rather interesting dynamic with this hearing is the fact that Frederick Bastian Forrest is not only a digital content creator, but also one from Quebec. In fact, you just heard his name mentioned by Benzi earlier on. It's an interesting dynamic because he is one of many that are supposedly not having their voices heard and that the evil algorithms are silencing. Perhaps somewhat surprisingly, these ideas are put towards him and, well, here's Senator Maville Deschain getting her answer. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you to our two witnesses. I also would like to ask a question to um, Fred Bastien. I think that's how we, uh, what we called you. And thank you for your expose. Thank you for your passion. It's the first time that we've had a Francophone YouTuber as a witness here. And so it's important for me. I do not have any doubts about your success. You seem to um, be on the rise. It's been slowing down a little bit now, but... Well, first of all, do you know where the 30 million people are who have listened to you? Do, do you? Are you able to know that? And secondly, I'd like to hear you talk a bit and I'd like to think to think beyond your own YouTube channel. That is to say, to think about Quebec culture, because you're really part of that with your French channel. You're part of this new French culture in Quebec. And how would you qualify that in terms of numbers? Because you named a, a, a list of Francophone YouTubers, but we're in a North American market where we're in the minority. So this idea that, not you personally, but that we should recommend to listeners to listen to more Francophone culture, is, is that a negative for you? I'd like you to just take a broader perspective beyond your own experience and uh, t tell me where your audience comes from. With pleasure. So I mentioned it quickly, but in general, about 80% of my viewings come from Francophone Canada, and I'm guessing that it's largely Quebec. I can't really know. I know that they're can Canadian Francophones, so I'm very happy about that because there are people in New Brunswick who watch me as well and elsewhere as and I'm very pleased about that. But 20 to 30% comes from Europe of my audience. So France and Belgium, as I mentioned. And if not, there are a few per per percentage points elsewhere in the world, probably people who are traveling. So that's what it looks like. And of course, each video is different. There are some that go well beyond my own audience. For example, I, I talked about the marathon. And uh, that video's had 100,000 views. So there are more people around the world who've seen that one than other videos I've made that are much more local, if I can put it that way. In terms of Francophone culture, I think that I have no choice but to, to talk about the concept of discoverability. When we ask a radio station to play more French content, it's easy because there's 24 hours in a day and there's a limited number of songs that you can play. So you can say 20% more of, of local culture. But this is how YouTube works. Often, we have the reflex, even, even as creators we do, that our job is to make a video and then YouTube's going to find us eyeballs. It's their job to show it. But it's rather the other way around. The YouTube thinks about the customer first. And they think, what pizza of content am I going to present to them today? And they click on one of the proposed items. So for the robot that YouTube is, for, for every minute, there are hundreds of millions of hours that are put up on the net. So what I know, there are other entities, but I know YouTube the best. And I've been able to talk to their engineers over the 
over my career. But if I can interrupt you for a minute, that means that you're comfortable to let this robot, this algorithm decide everything in terms of discoverability. Well, I'd like to, to conclude because I really believe that we could better mutually understand these two functions. There, there's something in the impact of that. So, so the robot, which receives millions of hours every minute, needs to find out what's interesting because some content is not. So what's, and, and what's interesting to whom? So what we have to understand is how much time the person spends in front of the video. So yes, I am a very proud producer of Quebec culture. And people who stop me in the street to talk about my videos look a lot like me. They have, they're wearing jeans. They like Star Wars and superheroes. They're between 18 and 40 years old. And if artificially we propose to YouTube to show my content to francophones who aren't interested, like those that I've just mentioned, well, the algorithm is going to see that my content is proposed, but, but people don't look at it, or they look at it for two seconds and leave. So YouTube concludes that my content's not interesting. Whereas if we show it only to people who are interested by that content, as is the case currently, which is an incentive both for the creators and for the platform at the same time, I have a much greater chance of reaching my public without my views being negatively impacted by people who you might think would be interested by this video, but are not necessarily. I like how the senators finally got a Quebec YouTuber. Then one senator finally gets to put her theory that Quebec voices are being squashed by the algorithm to the test, and Forrest ends up giving his honest answer that closely mirrors other Digital First creators. If the theory was down for the count before, any remnants of a comeback from that theory was completely flattened at that particular moment. <laughs> From my side of things, it felt like that was a clear moment of confirmation of what I had suspected. I went from pretty sure someone like him would say the same thing as other creators to yeah, people like him are pretty much on the same page here. <laughs> the second segment of that hearing featured witnesses from Netflix, the Motion Picture Association, and the Canadian Association of Film Distributors and Exporters. Again, this was a panel of both sides of the debate being brought together. If you thought that Benzie was the only one delivering a heck of a knockout punch, you'd be wrong. Another one was actually quite effectively delivered by Stefan Carden of Netflix at the considerable expense of Noah Segal. Mixed in was questions from Senator Liu Husakos. The moment was... well... Okay, just listen to the clip. <laughs> Um, I'll start off with round one. It seems to me, listening to the testimony here today, I, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around a number of things. The first thing, I keep hearing our need to protect our Canadian culture. And, and I don't believe we're back in 1980s when we were just a small little nation and worried about being uh, overtaken by American culture and others that are more powerful and stronger than we are. I believe that Canada is strong. Our artists are strong. All our sectors are strong, and the sectors that compete with the world, and we live in a global environment, are those that partner up with the global world. It doesn't matter if it's investment or joint partnerships. Uh, Canada is a G7 country, and we've succeeded in a w 
wide range of areas because of our partnering up and we've embraced the global markets. I remember years ago, we used to talk about free trade as being an anathema because it would, uh, would take away our Canadianism and that we would be bought up and swallowed up by the Americans. And you know what? We did pretty good with free trade. We've been dominant around, around the world as, as trading partners with, with our neighbors and other countries around the world. And what I've seen in the last few years because of streaming, because of digital, that we have a, a whole new world open up to our artists and, and, and cultural communities. So um, you touched upon it in your testimony about choice and competition. And my question is the following. If other countries start to embrace something similar like C-11 in their pursuit of supposedly closing off competition, and this is what I believe C-11 does, uh, what would be the repercussions on the Canadian cultural industry vis-a-vis investment and job opportunities and creating revenue, which we have today. And anyone is free to answer that question. I'll jump in first. I'll jump in first. Uh, first of all, I think you're confusing. You have on the other talk discussion, well, with Mr. McMillan and the gang, investment and profitability. Let's be really crystal clear. Global streaming is a new technology that is sweeping the entire entertainment business, and it's very successful. The the challenge is not the investment in the content, it's the sharing and the profitability. What they're doing is, is they're saying, we'll finance the making of the show, we'll own all rights forever and ever in perpetuity. So what happens is if a Canadian creator makes a show, sure they can get finance, sure they can get a paycheck this month, but they have no ancillary value back in the country. That is the equivalent of our lumber being sent across the world being changed and developed and Canadians buying it for twice the price later on. Let's be crystal, crystal clear. Nobody's trying to put up borders to the the streamers. We think they're wonderful. If the Canadians under any restrictions got it right, and we had this Canadian content that we successfully survived in, we would be maybe, maybe pushing our volume in Canada from 5% of viewership on Canadian content to 9% of viewership. And guess what? We're eight or 9% of the, um, of the North American market. So I think what you're saying is that we're going to be a pariah and we're not. And most other countries in the world are actually doing what we're suggesting. They're all doing it. Canadians are the most polite. The French, the Australians, the British, the EU, other territories are absolutely providing these kind of criteria and they're succeeding within it. The bottom line is when you you talk about how it's opening doors for Canadian content, let's be crystal on some facts. Schitt's Creek, which is one of the most successful Canadian content shows in recent history. Who paid for that show? Canadians. Who retained the profitability in that show? Netflix, American company. So let me ask you this. If it was so open, why, isn't, why aren't those guys sharing the profitability with Canadians? They're not because they like the profitability. And all we're asking is, okay, we don't want the profitability of your shows. We want the profitability of Canadian shows to be retained by Canadians. That's it. I don't think that's too much to ask. And when you're dealing in a market that you talk about the free market and globalization, I want to be crystal. It's not a fair playing field. When you're talking about these, if you look at the amount of those companies in the States and their bottom lines, they're massive. Canadian producers have no choice. It's completely David and Goliath. You have to sell your soul. Thank you, Mr. Siegel. Uh, and, And by the way, just to correct the record, the UK has explicitly chosen not to impose any investment obligations 
on global streamers, just to be no, clear. But they're demanding, Second, but they're, no, no, but they're demanding. No, but they're building a tax what, that's on what, those streamers. But that's what we're doing. They're building a tax. Second of yeah, all, second of all, I, I don't want to get into. I don't. I don't want to get into a debate. But I do agree with you that this is precisely the point of the discussion you just brought up. It's a question of how can we take profits away from one group to give it to another group that's not profitable. But I will give a few seconds to the others to weigh in, and then I got to turn it over to Senator Ismail Duchesne. Um, just to start addressing the uh, example of Schitt's Creek, I mean, the rights on that show are owned by an independent production company. Um, it did super well on uh, the CBC in its initial seasons, but when it was then broadcast on Pop in the U.S. and later on Netflix, um, and we took that show to the rest of the world, I think even the you know uh, executives of the CBC uh, itself have recognized that that helped with the success of that show in subsequent seasons, not just globally, but in Canada as well. And the market being extremely competitive, we have since actually lost the rights to Ships Creek in the U.S., and it's now uh, with, another, with another service. So I think that's an excellent example of how things can actually be win-win between independent Canadian producers, uh, Canadian broadcasters, and foreign streaming services. So thanks, Noah, for... Uh, bringing up the example. Um, on a larger perspective, I would say that for us, um, you know, independent producers and Canadian broadcasters um, remain important partners. There is no world in which Netflix is going to be able to uh, own every show that we make in Canada. In fact, the majority of shows on our service are licensed, not owned. But we are complementary to the role of Canadian broadcasters and Canadian funders. Again, our, our mandate is to find Canadian stories that we will bring to the rest of the world. So in, in that respect, we're not looking to supplant, but to augment the current system. And in certain cases, this, you know, the film and television business is a complex one in terms of its rules of how shows are developed and financed. And we feel it is legitimate in those cases where we have fully supported the development and production of a show, therefore borne all the financial risk, to therefore own the rights to that show. And to go back to the discussion, if you'll allow me, uh, Mr. Chair, that you had with Mr. McMillan on the previous panel, that is why, in our view, it is absolutely legitimate that if we are telling a Canadian story, employing Canadian creators, but that we happen to own the copyright, that show should qualify as Canadian content just, if it's, just as if it were owned by a broadcaster, a Canadian broadcaster, a Canadian broadcaster-affiliated production company, or an independent producer. And there are several examples I could relate to this committee. I'll just start with one. But um, our feature film, uh, Jusqu'au Déclin, uh, that we shot... Um, in uh, the Laurentians in Quebec, which was written and directed uh, by Quebecers, had an all-Quebec cast. Not a single cent of that budget was spent outside the province. Is not a Canadian uh, content project. Is not considered Québécois because we own the rights. Ouch! <laughs> Having seen the whole hearing. I know that Seagal was kind of left alone for most of the rest of the hearing. 
he was brought back in towards the end of the hearing. And you could tell he was still smarting from that one. I may not exactly be one to be cheerleading on premium services as I don't really have any skin on that part of the debate, but I have to say that for how calm and collected he came off in tone, he really didn't mess around there at all. I don't know how much Cardin was paid to be there, but it was clearly worth every penny for Netflix. Remind me to never have a debate about Netflix against that guy. We then moved on to the 10th hearing. The first segment featured Network Music Group, a Canadian record label that, since at least the mid-2000s, has a stellar track record when it comes to understanding technology. This includes the Save the Music Fan campaign, which was a pushback against the mass file-sharing lawsuits carried out by the major record labels. Things got rather interesting in an insightful manner when Patrick Aldous of Network spoke about the implications of the legislation from their perspective. Here's Senator Fabian Manning asking the question with Aldous responding. Thank you, Madam, Mr. Chair, and thank you to our witnesses for being here this evening. Uh, my question is for Mr. Aldous. You have referenced the work that Network has done over the past decade to develop and refine its relationship with digital music services. Bill C-11, you have said, will interfere with those relationships to the detriment of Network and, our, and its artists by inserting a regulatory regime into those carefully negotiated and long fostered private relationships. Effectively, if I heard you correctly, you have said Bill C-11 would make the CRTC a party to your private commercial agreements with no measurable benefit to either Canadian artists or Canadian music consumers. I'd like to know what do you see as the implications of this for Canadian artists and consumers, and how do you see Canadian artists responding uh, to this if C-11 is passed in its current uh, set? Well, thank you for your question. Um, the implication, I, I think, is is what I t- one of what I touched on in in my my address to the the committee that currently we have you know an open flat world for Canadian artists within digital streaming services, um, and within that open and flat world, we're able to receive. Um, very informative sets of data from our partners that allow us to um, both interpret the success of our artists uh, that is existing and also predict with some degree of accuracy where that success may go internationally. Um, Our concerns, again, with, with a regulatory approach to a digital music streaming service is that that will interfere with how those services interact with Canadian music and they will it will result in the sort of segregation of Canadian music within Canada itself and the discoverability of Canadian music outside of Canada will suffer um, it's what we have what is what we refer to at network is as geofencing and uh, that's some people call it geolocking it's a phenomenon where within a digital streaming service um, regional localized success sort of feeds upon itself and ultimately locks an artist into a particular geographic area and once that artist is locked into that geographic area from a streaming success perspective, it becomes extremely difficult to break that artist out of that 
um, geographically defined area. And we see that not just with Canadian artists, but we have a substantial Australian roster as well. We, it's a challenge for Australian artists. It's a challenge for artists, frankly, from, from any small, smaller market, smaller music market around the world. Um, so the imposition of a regulatory approach will not only um, create a, an element of interference within the data that we receive, we believe that it will ultimately result in Canadian artists being geofenced within Canada itself, which is not a particularly um, viable career path for uh, Canadian artists in the streaming era. I'm not sure if that answers your questions. That's fine. Uh, you noted that approximately 92% of network streaming revenue comes from outside of Canada. You have said that one of your Quebec-based artists has approximately 98% of his streaming activity occurring outside of Canada. You have That's warned correct. about the dangers of artists becoming locked within their own domestic territories when it comes to digital streaming. Uh, does this put Canada in the lead in terms of global cultural protectionism? Yes, it does, um, and that is one of our one of our major concerns. Is that um, Australia took a run at at a, a similar set of legislation, is my understanding, as did France. Um, both of which were, it's my understanding, were were abandoned. Um, I don't know what the status of those pieces of legislation are in Australia and France. Um, our concern is that, and we've been told from our partners around the world that the eyes of the world within the music business, the digital music business are on Canada with respect to this legislation. And we, we fear that the business model that we've built in an open world of digital streaming will become segregated and closed off on a regionally defined, geographically defined basis. Um, and it will be increasingly difficult to break artists into um, other protected uh, geographic um, markets around the world. I have to say, that is a really fascinating perspective. Yes, I heavily covered the plight of digital first creators a lot, so I don't get much opportunity to cover these more unique perspectives. Getting that perspective from an independent record label like that really helped add that interesting dimension to the overall debate. This and that it's not just small digital first creators getting harmed by this, but also music artists that have found varying degrees of success already. So it was interesting to hear the similar fears that are being expressed as well. I've always had a ton of respect for Network Music Group, and it seems that highly respectable track record is continuing to this day. In the second segment of Hearington, we heard from more researchers and scholars. Emily Laidlaw was part of the hearing, and she actually addressed an angle of this legislation that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention in the hearings up to this point. It wasn't really touched on in the question-answer portion, so here's part of her opening statement. I advocate in the area of online harms that this is something that we leave to a regulator to develop. But as drafted, Bill C-11 leaves too much to, to be decided later. And user-generated content on social media ends up being captured within it, almost the entire social media ecosystem. So the provisions as it stands are vague and overbroad. Now, I understand the desire to target a sliver of commercial content, um, but the problem right now is the drafting of it. 
because of what it captures. It will fail the test of requiring that restrictions of rights should be narrowly construed. So here are a few of the issues. One is, what is social media? Bill C-11 does not say. You know, if the goal is to target the big players, then be explicit. It's not perfect, but one way would be to target very large online platforms. You know, does social media include private messaging? Um, private messaging groups can be enormous. The bill applies to uploads. Does this include links? You know, what if a link is posted on Facebook, which takes a user to a website where a person posts songs or videos, and it's a subscription site? Um, what about links that embed videos, like a tweet linking to a video on YouTube? The other issue is that the bill captures a program that directly or indirectly generates revenue. So this provision in particular fails the test of a narrow restriction on rights. Um, generates revenue for whom? How indirect? The web of revenue streams on social media are complex, and social media now is mostly audio and visual content, so a lot of bog-standard content could be captured. I think the goal is to target specific types of commercial content, and I recommend a very narrow provision that airs on the side of being under-inclusive. And the other issue here is discoverability. So the bill imposes discoverability of commercial Canadian content on social media. And if we're looking at targeting this narrowly to commercial content on very large platforms, then there's some scope for this to be reasonable. But in terms of proportionality, consider will it achieve the outcomes desired? Does it restrict more free more speech than necessary? Does it incentivize privacy invasive practices? And one issue might be, does it compel speech by platforms in the ways in ways that cannot be justified. So there have been, you know, there's been some testimony about, well, the focus is on algorithmic outputs, not the algorithms themselves, but that's really neither here nor there in terms of the legality of the approaches. So some of the legal risks I've highlighted are cured by the requirement that the regulations must be consistent with free expression. This forces a rights analysis, which is good, but here's the problem. What are the metrics for free speech compliant broadcasting regulations applied to social media content? This is new territory in Canada and globally. So telling the commission to consider free expression does not tell the commission how to do it. And I would add to that that Canadian constitutional law is far too narrow of a framework to consider free expression. So we're operating a, in a global ecosystem, and it's imperative that the infrastructure of the internet is considered. So for the commission to properly consider free expression here, it would need to consider, you know, of course, Canadian free speech jurisprudence, including charter and private law, but also international human rights, the work of standard setting bodies like the OECD and ITU, and internet regulation broadly. You know, what is the infrastructure of the internet? How does information flow? I think ultimately social media is not a broadcasting program and that is the problem here. And there are legitimate reasons to regulate some commercial aspects of what is posted on social media, but either not under this legislation or done in a different way. And I would say that Fenwick has identified some really creative solutions in what he just spoke about now. If you do proceed, I really have two pieces of advice. I'd say one, narrow targeting of social media to, you know, social media of a certain size, narrow the range of content and behaviors that are being targeted. In short, 
be under-inclusive in the name of certainty and constitutionality. And the second would be broaden the focus to um, algorithmic accountability to get to the real root of the problem. I've been very flexible on time, but you need to wrap up. Oh, sorry. I thought I was at about five minutes, but clearly I have not. This was my last sentence, and I was actually just going to kick it back to Fenwick and say he's written some excellent work on discoverability and accountability, algorithmic accountability, that I think should be um, guiding the, the thoughts of the commission and how you proceed in the Senate. Thank you. Laidlaw really hits on a number of key points that goes through my mind when it comes to the question of if the legislation is constitutional or not. There was the issue of whether the scope of the legislation creeps into violating free speech thanks to compelling platforms to demote content in favor of other forms of content. Another angle that seems to be lesser known in case law is whether the legislation is a violation of freedom of expression in the area of compelled speech. If the law goes through as is and the platform is basically ordered to promote certain kinds of content, does that constitute compelled speech? If so, then is that a violation of freedom of expression? Apparently, that isn't necessarily clear, which would explain why I had such a hard time researching this idea in the past. In the U.S., compelled speech is, indeed, a violation of free speech. In Canada, it's not necessarily clear from a legal standpoint. At least that was what I was able to get out of that part of the hearing. It may be a bit of a more weird angle on free speech, but I find it to be a rather interesting one nevertheless. Now, I'm not going to lie, I am rather new to following Senate proceedings to this level of detail, so I honestly didn't know if that was the end of the hearings or if there was going to be more. As it turns out, and as Senator Paul Simons directly pointed out to me over Twitter, the Senate was only on a one-week break. There were more hearings to come. A week later, I saw more hearings on the schedule, so there was going to be week five of hearings after all. During the 11th hearing, we heard from someone with ties to the Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, or CIPIC. This along with two experts including Dwayne Winsek. Winsek was very clear that the idea of sweeping in so many forms of human expression into the definition of broadcasting is an infuriating concept. The definitions of this legislation needs to be fixed. Otherwise, according to Winsek, it opens this legislation up to a court challenge. Vivek Krishnan Murphy, who happens to have a relationship with Sipic, was of particular interest to me as a witness. This is because, during one of my rare moments of making predictions, if the legislation is passed as is, that it would not only be subject to a court challenge, but Sipic would very likely become a party of that litigation, at least from the constitutional side of things. Whether they end up being a main litigant in such a case or filing an amicus brief, I would be surprised if they decided not to touch such a case after all is said and done. So perhaps an interesting test was whether or not Krishna Murphy would raise the issue of freedom of expression. Here's him answering a question from Senator Meville Deshane. Second, I would like to address this question to both of you, Mr. Winsek and Mr. Krina Murphy. Um, freedom of expression. You've mentioned that. You probably well know that in the bill on page 10, uh, it has been there has been an amendment saying that uh, the act apply in a manner that is consistent with freedom of expression. I didn't quite follow your uh, argument about restrictions being freedom of expression, and you mentioned protecting kids. 
Well, obviously, as you know, freedom of expression as a right is not absolute, and there are reasonable, reasonable limitations in it, and there has been some in the history of uh, this country. So I'm wondering if you're not, um, si vous ne brandissez pas des épouvantails. I wonder if you're not fear-mongering by referring to freedom of expression in this context. I'll respond in English if I may, and if it suits you, Senator. With regard to 4.2, the invocation of freedom of expression in the bill does no work, regardless of that statement. Of course, uh, the CRTC or the government or whoever else would have to respect freedom of expression. Otherwise, the courts will strike them down, right? That's how things work. All right. So what is the nature of my concern? The problem is with the government giving itself the authority or vesting the authority in the CRTC in the first instance to regulate a great deal of human expression using a structure that is purpose-built for broadcasting where governments do have the limitations on freedom of expression in the broadcasting context um, are stronger, right? There's more grounds for a government to do that. That is what our constitutional law and the laws of other countries that are democracies have held. So my concern is with the government sweeping all of this in, in the first instance, and then creating narrow exclusions that are not very strong, that could be, right? Our institutions are fallible. And my view is that when we are crafting legislation, we should not sweep more broadly than we need to. So if you would allow me, I'll propose my simple solution to 80% of the concerns that I raised. And the solution is simply to recast the exception in, in 4.2 so that it does not apply in respect of user-generated content, or it could be framed in terms of editorial control. So when a service like Apple TV Plus decides what to put on its service, the act could apply. When YouTube has its own created content that it uploads to its service, the act could apply. However, when I upload the video of my very cute cat to YouTube, the act would not apply. It would not apply to things that the platform does not have editorial control over. This would cure many of the free expression concerns that I and others have with the bill. And it would also set a positive example, I think, in the international debate. And I want to set out the international stakes here. Canada is the chair of the Global Freedom Online Coalition. A free and open internet are central to Canadian values and to Canadian foreign policy. And we have taken that leadership role in the world. So I think when we are regulating the online sphere, we need to be very clear about what we're doing and what we're not doing. And to send the signal to say that, you know, we think broadcasting is different. So quite the teardown of the defense of the legislation respects freedom of expression thanks to the little must-respect-free-speech provision tacked on at the end of the section. For him, there is considerable concerns in regards to free speech with how the bill is currently written. As presumptive as this sounds, if that is already on his mind, it feeds into the theory that others at CIPIC might be of the same mind when it comes to this bill. So the crazy far out there guests I have might actually be becoming less crazy sounding, even if a little bit. The second segment of Hearing 11 featured lobbyists. Interestingly enough, the Quebec YouTube creator, Bastion, came up. Things got surprisingly tense where Marie-Julie de Rocher basically said that the problems he would face under the legislation is not her problem. Here's a clip in an exchange with Senator Maville Deschain. 
I'm sorry to cut you off, Ms. Pejan. I don't have much time. But were the bill to only target the big players, why does the Union des Artistes, why isn't the coalition in favour of deleting Clause 4.4.2, which is the one being challenged, isn't it? It would affect the small YouTubers and other concerns such as them. Marie-Julie, would you like to respond? Well, yes, let me give you a broad response, Senator. I listened with interest to Fred Bastien's testimony and he mentioned that he is also in favour of these platforms to contributing financially and he'd like to benefit from that. Now, this is an individual who is afraid that the discoverability measures that still don't exist and still haven't been defined, he is afraid that the hypothetical discoverability measures might harm him on those platforms. So this is a hypothetical scenario. I can't blame him. I wouldn't go so far as to blame him about being afraid to lose his public, but it's demonstrable. The CRTC will be seized of the facts when it understands what YouTube is doing. The onus will be on him to make his case. But again, it's hypothetical. Minister Rodriguez has said that those individuals who don't want to fall within the scope of the legislation in terms of discoverability will be excluded under order in council. And I'd remind you that in the, leg in the bill, it states that CRTC must avoid imposing standards or requirements that fly in the face of the general policy of radio broadcasting. So all of that must be factored in. Everything must be decided on the basis of fact. The main issue we have with these platforms is that right now we have no data on the, their impact on our system. And I was glad that Mr Sebastian talked about the percentage of folks who are watching our content from Europe. This is interesting, but we need aggregated data on the impact of these services on the and then we'll be able to take well-informed decisions. But we need legislation that is broad-based, otherwise we won't be able to get our hands on that kind of data. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I might have gone over, says the Senator. Wow. Just wow. Yeah, it's all well and fine what he's doing, so when the time comes, they're happy to just feed him to the CRTC lions. Kind of shocking just how open the lobbyists are to destroying the careers of digital first creators, really. I guess at this point, there is no risk to showcasing the evil intent. Also, we were able to cover the first segment of Hearing 12. In this panel, we had two experts speak about the legislation. While it covered a lot of similar ground from the previous hearings, there was a portion which veered into a less talked about portion of legislation. While most of the debates surrounded content produced by digital-first creators, and that includes content produced by premium platforms and music, there was one area that didn't get any attention up until now. That area is adult content. While some people in the room looked visibly uncomfortable even bringing this up, this is actually a rather weird aspect of the legislation. The legislation actually does cover porn websites. As one jokingly commented prior to these hearings, is that porn Canadian enough? It sounds weird, but the former CRTC commissioner, Peter Menzies, did confirm that this legislation would indeed regulate such content. In fact, he suggested that he would find it unlikely that CRTC would simply regulate other forms of content and set aside porn websites. I know, it sounds like a really bad joke, but they 
are serious about this. In another instance, Senator Liu Husakos asked if they should just leave the legislation vague and leave it up to the CRTC to decide, or if there should be amendments to make the language clear that small players are out. A C-11 supporter got rather animated, insisting that language should remain the same, despite him earlier saying that legislation would change nothing. He even got in an argument with Menzies, who has experience as a CRTC commissioner on top of it all. My question is for Mr. Menzies. Uh, Mr. Menzies, you have said in the past that C-11, with the powers that it gives the CRTC, would put at risk 100,000 content producers uh, in the country who are presently uh, using YouTube, you mentioned that it would put those 100,000 content producers at risk. Can you elaborate a little bit? What exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean that there's a risk of them leaving Canada, or is there other, uh, some kind of other uh, repercussions? If this well, I think there's without a, a minute. Sorry, go ahead. Sure, sure. I, I think there's a risk of them just getting captured in this regulatory maze. I mean, years ago, if you know, if I have time, I, I remember looking at a a YouTube video of a couple of Gwich'in guys up on the Dawson River, just west of Dawson, or the Yukon River, just west of Dawson City. And one guy had a fiddle and one guy had a guitar and they were, you know, singing their tunes, right? And that YouTube video went to an indigenous community globally, right? I remember looking at these two guys and saying, man, imagine all the work they would have to do to go through a regulatory system to be able to tell their story and sing their songs, right? From Dawson City, right? Way up there, a couple of Gwich'in guys to be able to tell that story. And this is the this will intimidate that process, right? Is the CRTC is still to make the decision whether that's commercial or whether it's in or whether it's out and that sort of stuff. Those guys don't have a chance. They don't have GR people. They don't have regulatory affairs people, that, that sort of thing. So those are the people I'm thinking about. You know, there's sort of like indigenous groups and other underrepresented <laughs> groups who have to go through this maze of bureaucrats, bureaucracy that the, the CRTC involves and funding and that sort of stuff. All these guys want to do is tell their story and play their music. So that's um, probably the best example I can give of that. There are larger companies that uh, that that are facing um, more of a threat, but it's the broader. That's the broader picture I was looking at. Mr. Armstrong, est-ce que vous voulez? Uh... Mr. Armstrong, would you like to add anything? I um, I think that uh, there's a lot of mis many many misconceptions around what Bill C11 is doing, what it proposes, um, and uh, in this case, I don't think it would it'll have any effect on small players. Uh, I think the uh, CRTC had, will have the good sense as it's done in the past to simply exempt uh, all of the small players and by small players to be defined at a public hearing, hopefully, uh, which the, the commission would hold. So um, I, I think all this, uh, all of the people that are, uh, you know, producing or not pr producing less than $30 million a year in revenues, let's take that as a, p a potential threshold. Uh, it could be higher, it could be something else. Um, that uh, there simply won't be affected and uh, it will simply pass over their heads and they will have, it will have no effect. 
Thank you for that answer, Mr. Armstrong. And, and, and I guess my follow-up question is, is the following. So should this committee and should Parliament uh, leave the legislation up in the air when it comes to protecting small independent content producers, or should we make amendments to make sure that uh, the CRTC isn't given an option on this issue? I think it's, I believe to most Canadians it's important. So that's the first question, and my, my uh, attachment to that question uh, is as well, do you, both of you think it would be helpful if we would attach regulatory directives to this piece of legislation uh, before we pass it that would give more uh, rigid guidelines to the CRTC? I'm very curious to hear both of you on that. Right, and my, my answer very simply is no and no. Uh, I think that uh, this kind of issue should be left to the discretion of the CRTC. There, there is, there has, there was an attempt. There is an attempt in uh, Bill uh, C11 with um, uh, paragraphs 4.2, uh, 4.1, and 4.2 uh, to uh, control to some extent, and it, uh, they're unfortunately difficult to understand and confusing. But I think they're adequate and. If they are not adequate, then as a couple of other um, people on previous panels have suggested to you, well, you should simply remove them and leave everything to the discretion of the CRTC. I have confidence that the CRTC, which makes occasionally makes mistakes, as it may have done in the case of the CBC decision um, on, on uh, the N-word, but um, in all, all of our regulatory bodies and institutions uh, make mistakes and uh, occasionally. I, I think the CRTC, by and large, has exer exercised its discretion uh, appropriately and uh, adequately. Let's say, let's put it that way. There's yeah, so, thirty seconds left, Mr. Menzi. Thank you. Yeah, um, the problem with that is that if you leave a door open, sooner or later, one aggrieved group or another will appear before the CRTC and ask for that to change. The thirty million sounds reasonable. One hundred and fifty million, we're just arguing over price then. But sooner or later, that will that will occur. Somebody will come and ask the CRTC to exercise that jurisdiction because it works for them. The people I'm talking about will have no voice in front of the CRTC. So the CRTC will deal with the evidence in front of it. Those two Gwich'in guys from Dawson City won't have a chance, right? In terms of in terms of being able to represent and make their case before the CRTC, they probably won't even know what's going on. And then the next thing they know, they're not being able to upload to YouTube. So exercise your discretion, draw a line as quick as you can. But hundreds of people like them will have the opportunity I, to. I forced, forced to no, they won't. I'm I think sure they this, you'll have opportunities to continue to elaborate on this important question. We've heard a lot about the CRDC, but I have to move on to Senator Klein and then Senator Simon. Yes, Bill C-11 supporters are audacious enough to believe they know more about the CRTC than someone who was actually a CRTC commissioner. I don't know about you, but I trust the guy with the CRTC experience over the C-11 supporter. <laughs> Finally, we found out that there will be a week six of hearings afterwards. That discovery hit as we reached the cutoff point, so something to look forward to next month. Moving on, this month saw yet another major political scandal unfold over the Bill C-11 hearings. At the center of this was none of the notorious Liberal MP, Chris Biddle. Yes, the same guy who perpetrated the racism accusation scandal and several other political scandals is at it yet again, and lengthening his quickly growing rap sheet. 
The politician effectively tried to intimidate people who were testifying against the legislation. To do so, he was calling for so-called investigations into anyone who dared criticize the legislation. In a letter leaked to the Globe and Mail, presumably by Biddle himself, he called for an investigation into Digital First Canada. The letter itself was multiple months old, but it leaked just a day before Scott Benzie was set to testify. The timing was highly suspicious. It forced Benzie to have to contact the lobbying commissioner multiple times to ask if there was an investigation against his organization or if there was anything that was improper or missing with the paperwork that he should be made aware of. The lobbying commissioner responded that there was no active investigation against him and his organization is fully in compliance with all applicable laws. The shocking details that the MP would attempt to intimidate anyone testifying unfavorably to legislation made waves both in the online news realms and within the halls of government. An MP rose in a point of order asking the Speaker to investigate. Senators expressed disgust that the Liberals would attempt to bully witnesses into silence. It should also be noted that Benzi, at the request of Senator Leo Husakos, tabled the confirmation email he received saying that he and his organization are in compliance with all applicable laws. Finally, there has been some fast-moving developments in the Bill C-18 debate. As you know, Bill C-18 is Canada's link tax law. The legislation would steal money from smaller players like Friesen and hand it all over to the larger players like the CBC, CTV, Toronto Star, and other members of the establishment. A lone hearing was held this month, but if you followed the hearing like I did, nothing of value was given to the debate. Conservative MPs, along with Michael Geis and Jen Gerson of The Line, a small online news organization, tried to keep the discussions surrounding the text of the legislation and the detrimental impacts it would have in focus. Unfortunately, Liberal MPs, NDP MPs, and the slate of lobbyists spent most of the time playing political games, pushing misinformation, and even launching political attacks on anyone daring to criticize the legislation. I won't have you suffer through what I listened to, so I'll just summarize some of the few key points that were made. Gerson pointed out that the legislation would have a major detrimental impact on our business. Further, the legislation is based on a lie that platforms are republishing news content and profiting off of it when, in fact, they're simply allowing people to post links to news organizations. That is a major difference between what is being claimed and reality. University law professor Michael Geist pointed out that had this bill been about platforms that used whole articles, it would be a very different debate. However, most people, I would say sane people, wouldn't count a link, a small snippet, or simply referring to a news organization by name, count as republishing their material that demands payments. Further, he pointed out the many international trade obligations that this legislation violates such as the Berne Convention on Quotation Use, among other things. Shortly after, Google published results of a poll they conducted with Canadians about Bill C-18. The poll was in response to a different poll conducted by big media pushing this legislation. Results from Google showed that, contrary to the talking points by big media, Canadians are not well informed about the legislation and they share many of the same concerns Google has about it. The simple fact that Google commissioned Abacus to help raise awareness about the legislation infuriated Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez. In a fit of rage and hypocrisy, the minister accused Google of trying to avoid accountability. So, for the minister, the action is only okay when supporters do it, it seems. Shortly after, there were two major developments. First, the Canadian government said that it intended on shutting down debate of Bill C-18. 
The move would leave dozens of witnesses, both for and against legislation, out of any potential hearings at the House of Commons level. The news came on top of what Geist referred to as an embarrassing study process where so few witnesses were called to testify about the legislation. Arguably, little attention was even focused on the text of the bill itself, even when witnesses are called to testify in the first place. Upon word that the government was shutting down debate, Facebook, one of the major platforms, said that they were, quote, surprised not to receive an invitation to participate, particularly given public comments by lawmakers that this law is targeted at Facebook, unquote. Facebook further explained the following in a statement. Canada is incredibly important to Meta. Canadians will always be able to use Facebook to connect with friends and family, to help build communities and to grow their businesses. But faced with adverse legislation that is based on false assumptions that defy the logic of how Facebook works, we feel it is important to be transparent about the possibility that we may be forced to consider whether we continue to allow the sharing of news content in Canada. So, the potential for blocking all news in Canada on Facebook is, indeed, on the table for Facebook. While that should cause some supporters to think twice about the legislation, many are content with the completely nuance-free idea that Facebook said that they'd do it in Australia, but then changed course after. Given the news lately about how little impact news has on the large platform's business model, combined with the slowdown of the global economy, that threat could have some added weight to it. Indeed, this would hurt FreezeNet in the short term, but if it sends a clear message of how fundamentally stupid the idea of a link tax is in the first place, I'm all for the idea. So, a rather large marathon of stories packed into the top three headlines this month. Let's take a look at some of the other stories making news this month. Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez caught even more controversy this month over the Bill C-11 debate. Google, this month, released a statement on the legislation pointing out flaws of the bill. Part of the statement reads as follows. In its current form, Bill C-11 would require YouTube to manipulate these systems and surface content according to the CRTC's priorities rather than the interests of Canadian users. Put into practice, this means that when viewers come to the YouTube homepage, they're served content that a Canadian government regular has prioritized rather than the content they are interested in. Rodriguez, for his part, threw yet another temper tantrum over the news, ran to CTV News, and said that Google is, quote, trying to intimidate Canadians, unquote. So, apparently, Google pointing out flaws in the legislation makes them the real bullies here. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, the CRTC has pushed the decision to grant the request of telecom giant TELUS to raise their fees to the end of the year. The request would allow TELUS to pass along a 1.5% fee onto consumers with all applicable taxes if they pay with a credit card. Obviously, the answer to this should clearly be no, but given the abysmal track record of the CRTC lately, it's probably not a surprise that they didn't immediately reject the idea. So, quite a lot going on, and to be honest, it's incredibly hard to keep up with it all. Still, I think we are doing well under the circumstances and resources afforded to us. Of course, all that work has now made me tired. So let's turn towards entertainment. Before we get into the video game reviews, I want to point out the first impression videos we posted this month. First up is the Steam game Call of Duty. You can check out that video directly on our site and on YouTube. The PlayStation 3 game of the month is Twisted Metal. That video can be found directly on our site and on YouTube. After that, we tried the Xbox 360 game Forza Motorsport 2. That video can be seen on our site and on YouTube. 
We then wrapped up the month with the Steam game Return to Castle Wolfenstein. That video can be seen on our site and on YouTube. As always, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and turn on notifications to get real-time updates on what videos we posted. Now, here are the video games reviewed this month. First up is the Sega Genesis game, Sonic the Hedgehog Spinball. A game that sounds great on paper, but fell short on execution. Limited features, but solid graphics and decent music make up for some of the shortcomings. So a game that gets a reasonably good 70%. Next up is Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine for the Sega Genesis. An attempt at reimagining Puyo Puyo, but one that contains a steep difficulty curve and repetitive play. This one gets an average 56%. After that we tried Iggy's Wrecking Balls for the Nintendo 64. A weird name, but a game that offers a really interesting new take on combat racing. Nice graphics and memorable soundtrack really helped take this game over the top. This one gets a great 84%. Finally, we finished up with Golden Axe 2 for the Sega Genesis. A game with a real mix of strengths and weaknesses. For strengths, there is an interesting problem-solving nature to defeating enemies among other things. For weaknesses, there is the short length and flawed enemy AI. So overall, this one gets a good 70%. As for music listened to this month, we've got Weird Al Yankovic, The Night Santa Went Crazy, Bad Religion, A Walk, Iggy Pop, To Belong, Sting, I Hung My Head, The Bare Naked Ladies, The Old Apartment, Nickelback, Fly, Dave Matthews Band, Crash Into Me, Ash, Goldfinger, and finally, The Tragically Hip, Ahead by a Century. So that leads us to Pick of the Month. This month, our Pick of the Month belongs to Iggy's Wrecking Balls for the Nintendo 64. Also, be sure to check out Weird Al Yankovic, The Night Santa Went Crazy. Before we close out this month's episode, we got one quick announcement to make. This month, we released the September Wiki content patch. All it does is update for the latest episodes for the shows Group Therapy, Synth City, Future Sound of Egypt, Fables, Resonation, and the View Recordings podcast. No new episode for the Random Move podcast that month, so this archive remains up to date as is. Of course, one thing to note is that while it's just the minimum, this update also includes the 500th episode special for Group Therapy, so the basics actually have quite a lot of meat to them this month. Full disclosure, I probably would have added a lot more, but this Bill C-11 business has proven to be both incredibly popular and time-consuming, so I've been pretty focused on that as of late. If you'd like to get Hanson's behind-the-scenes stuff, exclusive content, and early access material, you can check our Patreon page at patreon.com slash freeznet. Through this, it can help make freeznet just that much better all the while getting some pretty cool stuff in the process. That's patreon.com slash freeznet. Alternatively, you can simply buy us a coffee via coffee.com slash freeznet. And that's this month's episode for October 2022. I'm Drew Wilson for Freeznet. Be sure to check out our website freeznet.ca for all the latest news and reviews. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening, and see you next month.